American computer scientist Alan Perlis once said, Fools ignore complexity. Pragmatists suffer it. Some can avoid it. Geniuses remove it. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we're talking about complexity creep. Let's break that word down here real quick. Complexity. It means, in this case, to add more rules, options, and choices to a game. Creep means to approach slowly, imperceptibly, stealthily. So if you combine those together, you get complexity creep, which... Well, what does that mean, John? Well, when we're talking about complexity creep, we're talking about where you add complexity to a game in small increments, more and more and more and more and more, and suddenly the game is so much more complicated than you actually realized, and you find that you have to relearn the game you thought you already knew. That's complexity creep, and it applies mostly to RPGs in our context. So let's give a little bit of a history lesson here. In 2nd in edition, the game was mostly contained in its three books. The Player's Handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide, and the Monster Manual. Now, in 2nd edition, all the rules were fairly simple and straightforward. You had fairly basic combat choices. You moved and you attacked. That was basically all of combat. Magic was its own thing outside of that, but apart from that it was just roll initiative, move, attack. Anything that added choices to that was something of a breath of fresh air. Anything that added complexity made the game more interesting at that point. So when things came out like skills and powers, when they introduced systems like kits where you could customize a fighter to be more of a swashbuckler type fighter or more of a peasant hero type fighter, that just added new interest to a fairly simple game that everyone had been playing. With 3rd edition, when that came around, they revolutionized this whole concept by letting everyone add to the complexity. The open game license, which was based on the idea of open source software, where a number of people contributed freely to a specific code base and then took freely from that code base. It's the same sort of idea. It was a rule system where people were allowed to freely contribute to the rules of the system and take from the rules of the system to use what they wanted. Now, we still had the three core books we still had a player's handbook, a dungeon master's guide, and a monster manual that were considered the absolute core of the game. You needed these three books to play Dungeons and Dragons. Beyond that, there was a smorgasbord of options. Anyone who had the wherewithal to do so could publish whatever material they wanted. You could take it, approach your DM, and say, I'd like to play this in your game. And with approval, you could add it to the game. This was a great set of options that let you do basically whatever you wanted. It allowed you to play Diablo with the D20 rules. I remember seeing a Diablo handbook. It allowed you to play EverQuest as a tabletop game. It allowed you to play Big Eyes Small Mouth as a D20 game, as opposed to the, what was it, the Tri-Stat system? Yeah, Tri-Stat system, uh, which was actually pretty interesting, but that's not the point. The point is, all of these just gave you new options. That was very cool. And there were certain expectations that came with that. One of the 
big expectations was that everyone needed to know what the rules were, which meant that you needed to have the rulebook available to the other players. It was a big problem for a lot of groups because there's all these rulebooks out there. So online in the community, people discussed ways of making this work for the majority of groups. And what was generally agreed upon was that the Wizards of the Coast material was always the tightest, most well-produced material available. So the brown books, the so-called brown books, which at the time were things like Song and Silence, Sword and Fist, which added new options for classes, were considered to be the basic canon of the game, and then anything beyond that was just your group's options and choices. When 3.5 came out, it revamped the rules system, and again, we were in this open landscape where anything was possible, there were new expectations, but we were still playing by these same rules with the three core rule books. Then, Wizards of the Coast released the complete line, and everyone kind of remembers the complete line because they introduced a very awesome set of options to the game without overwhelming anyone. The four that everyone remembers are Complete Warrior, Complete Arcane, Complete Divine, and Complete Adventure, released in that order with much fanfare and anticipation. Each one added options for the basic gaming archetype. The Warrior added any for the fighters, the warrior types. Arcane was for the mages and arcane spellcasters. Divine, of course, being for the divine spellcasters and classes like Paladin that took from divine sources. And finally, Adventurer for the rogues and other scoundrels that did their own thing. The wonderful thing about these books was it gave you options not just for those classes, but they allowed you to play that type of archetype with every class. I remember there was an arcane option for the monk that lets you channel spells into your fists and start shooting fireballs all Dragon Ball Z type. I remember that there was a divine option for the barbarian. All of these were wonderful ways of mixing and matching and customizing your characters. And it was a very specific set of books that everyone basically agreed were really good. These four books were the core of most gaming groups, and when most gaming groups said brown books only, that was what they were referring to. After these, the Player's Handbook 2 came out, which was very divisive. Some people thought it was fantastic, other people not so much. I, for one, thought it added a lot of interesting options like retraining, but in general was really just kind of felt like a, another one of these complete books, but without the focus of the other ones, where it was just this unfocused, this is a whole new set of rules for the game. It was extracurricular, much like Unearthed Arcana was, which was a very divisive book among many groups. It Unearthed Arcana gave so many different rules options that were just that. They were just options. And that was one of the things that was great about it, is how explicitly it stated these are all optional rules. There was a sort, a sort of canonical weight to the Complete series. You know, if somebody pulled out Complete Warrior and said, my character draws from Complete Warrior, everyone would nod sagely and agree. Like, yes, this is Dungeons and Dragons. Of course, what a lot of people don't remember is that there were actually four more complete books that came after that first four set of complete books, and they weren't as well received. Those were Complete Champion, Complete Scoundrel, Complete Mage, and Complete Psionic. Now, Complete Psionic was, of course, incredibly divisive. Not everyone has feelings about how psionics should or should not be included in a fantasy game, and we won't get into that right now. What we will get into, though, is how these other books didn't really make the cut the same way. They didn't speak to those same archetypes. And one of the big things that was necessary at the time for a gaming group was that everyone had to have access to the games, which meant you had to have money to buy these books. And while everyone pretty much agreed that the first four complete books were a fantastic addition to their group's gaming library, the rest 
of them, no one was really sure about. No one really came to a conclusion about. So while a lot of groups would like pinch together and one person might have Warrior, one person might have Arcane, but collectively as a group, they all had access to the group books. No one was really all that sold on Scoundrel or Champion. No. And Champion had weapons that upgraded and unlocked as the adventure went along, which was cool. And Scoundrel had skill tricks, which were neat. But none of that was really necessary. And it never felt necessary. These all felt like just add-ons to the rules that were creating more things you could do in a system that was already pretty dense with things you could do. So those kind of fell off to the wayside. And that was okay. A lot of groups were very comfortable with these four brown books and then anything else being house-ruled in by their group on a per-item basis with approval from the DM. However, Wizards of the Coast needed to continue to put out products and needed to continue to make money. So they decided to release D&D 4th Edition. At the time that this was happening, the company Paizo Publishing was creating adventure paths for 3.5 set in their world of Galarian, which they didn't want to give up and upon talking to the designers about 4th edition, they weren't comfortable trying to convert over to 4th edition. They didn't feel it had the same sort of feel as their game would need in order to continue to have that Pathfinder legacy to it. So they decided to continue with the open gaming license, which was their legal right. Because of the way the open gaming license was written, this was absolutely allowed. Now, I'm going to go out and say right now that the adventure paths are the hands-down absolute best part of Pathfinder. I subscribe to the adventure Path series. I get them in the mail every month and I read through them going, ooh, wait, I want to run this one. Ooh, I want to run this one. Ooh, I want to run this one. I have a hundred some odd Adventure Path books on one of my bookshelves right now, bowing it right down in the middle with its weight, and I want to run these. I love these things. Now, Pathfinder, like D&D before it, released their own set of complete books, but they called them Ultimate Books. And the first two in that series were Ultimate Combat and Ultimate Magic, which were received with much fanfare. Everyone recognized this as the legacy of those complete series books, and was excited to include this in their gaming group. And these all immediately started appearing in the Adventure Paths. Now, one thing Wizards of the Coast had always been pretty conservative about is including their expanded material in their published adventures. If you found a published adventure, it would not typically have a hex blade in it, or it would not typically contain a Shugenja. And if it wasn't specifically Oriental, there wouldn't be ninjas or samurai. It would be set in a more generic setting, and the characters in it would typically be of the more generic fare. Pathfinder immediately started introducing this new material directly into their adventure paths. In fact, some of the adventure paths introduced material first that would later end up in the Ultimate books. And everyone was very excited about this. The organic nature of the game was growing. It was adding more interest to the game. Here's where we have a problem. Here's where I personally have a problem. I'm never going to run Pathfinder again. Pathfinder has grown and grown to such an extent that I I can't DM it with any real level of proficiency anymore. In Pathfinder right now, there are 37 classes. That's the core classes, the base classes, the hybrid classes, and the occult classes. We're not talking about prestige classes. These are core classes that can be played from level 1 to 20 with nothing else. Of those 37 classes, every single one of them has archetypes to build and change these classes. Along with that, there are 37 different races. Now, the reason I 
bring up races is because a halfling paladin and a dwarven paladin are going to play completely differently. Likewise, a ratfolk paladin probably does something else? So there's 37 races. That's, of course, among the core, the featured, and the uncommon races. Now, 37 classes times 37 races is 1,369 race class combinations. That's not even counting all of the archetypes. That is a lot to keep track of, and a big part of why this is more of a problem with Pathfinder than it was with games previous is the internet, and the internet making information available to everyone. Which sounds great, and it is great, but it also means that we have core material that is now intermingled completely with this other material. If you look at the Pathfinder open game license material on the various websites that archive this material, it doesn't typically make a great deal of effort to specifically denote what was introduced in, say, Pathfinder's core rulebook, what was introduced in Ultimate Warrior, and what was introduced in, say, Ultimate Intrigue, which no one was really... Do you know anyone who is excited about Ultimate Intrigue? I was very excited about the vigilante. I wanted to play Batman. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. But apart from that, no one was really sitting there going, oh man, ultimate intrigue. I just, I need this for my campaign. No one was alarmingly excited about it. And that's a big thing. Whereas now this material is completely intermingled with the core material in the most authoritative sources of Pathfinder material available, the PFSRD and other open game licensed material sites, which is the primary source for all of the material. It means that whereas before Four, you selected your material largely based on the budgeting and availability of your group. Now, everything is available to everyone, which is both good and bad from a complexity standpoint. As a DM, if you come up to me and say that you're going to be playing a kinetic chirurgeon, I'm going to have to look that class up. If we're playing and you're at level 5, that's three feats I'm going to have to look up, plus the traits that you picked up, plus your race. I don't know what that does. I don't know what a kinetic chirurgeon is. I actually, those are terms that mean nothing to me right now. And I thought I was keeping up with Pathfinder. And Jeremy was able to come up with several class combinations and race combinations where I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And and I have a shelf full of Pathfinder books, which I receive on a nearly monthly basis. And I read with voracious, voracious appetite for this information. And I, I can barely keep up with this. So if I'm sitting there, if I'm about to DM for a group, and they sit down and go, all right, we have an orc scald, a ratfolk alchemist, a human spiritualist, and a gripply paladin, I'll look at them and go, uh, can you fight goblins? Can, can you open a magically locked door? I, I don't know. The answer is, I don't know. I don't know what this group can and cannot face. And it's very difficult just from that information to be able to tell you what this group can and cannot face. And with the way that Pathfinder has grown, it's become this thing where when you say Gripply Paladin, Gripply, like that, that was the one that I was like, okay, okay, I know it. Gripplies are frogmen and Paladin is a Paladin. So it's a Gripply Paladin. It's a frogman Paladin. I could kind of work with that. So what does he do? Well, he actually channels divine might through a pair of nunchucks while riding on the back of a giant slug. The slug is actually very slow, but it doesn't matter because it has an ability that controls the battlefield and draws the enemies to him. Okay, you've lost me again. You, you have all these classes and races and archetypes and feats and traits, and I, I know that you don't have to worry about every single one of the combinations, because some of them are unplayably bad, okay. some of them are suboptimal. Okay, oh, no, 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 okay, stop, stop. I have to go on this rant now, okay? Optimization is a quagmire. 
optimization is one of the worst things that can happen to gaming. I know that that's a very, very powerful blanket statement, and that's going to hurt a lot of people who spend their time optimizing. But character optimization is pointless. It is an arms race you cannot win. The DM will always create challenges that challenge your character. Actually, um, what was it? Uh, Crichton. Yeah, Crichton Broadhurst, the publisher at Raging Swan Press, which, by the way, if you get a chance, go over to Raging Swan Press, check out his articles. He's very articulate, his articles aren't incredibly long, and he, he puts a lot of thought into his thing, so go check it out if you can. So, anyway, he, he had an article where he discussed the boom and bust cycle of optimization. And this is this is what I've been trying to say about optimization for a very long time. Cycle of optimization is you optimize your character. And then the DM throws a challenge at you that would normally be difficult. But your character is very well optimized. So it overcomes this challenge without any real difficulty. Well, the DM is disappointed. And actually, so are you. You're a little let down. Well, the DM wants to keep the game interesting. And not wanting to kill you outright. Because obviously, you know, he can throw a god at you and just destroy you. But no, he wants to keep it in that sweet spot. So he ups the challenge. Now you find that things are challenging again. So you take whatever the things your character was good at and you make them better at that. And you push more optimization into that. And you just laser guide yourself on this one thing and become more powerful yet. And then the DM's challenges are no longer challenging. Well, now the DM has to try and throw more challenges at you. He actually has two choices. He can completely avoid the challenge that you're doing and attack you from another angle. In which case, why are you optimizing? Because that now no longer applies to your game. Or he can continue to challenge your optimizations, which will continue to cause you to optimize until one of two things happens. One of you gets exhausted of it. Either you give up or the DM gives up, or the game breaks. You hit the limits of the game. Neither of these is a good outcome. Unless you enjoy optimizing characters, optimizing characters is a waste of time. It also hurts your group cohesion because when you make a character that can do 500 damage in a single round, there is an implicit challenge to the rest of the group that says, why don't you do 500 damage in a single round. What did you choose instead of doing 500 damage in a single round? Is it worth 500 damage in a single round? And if the answer is no, your character is strictly superior to their characters. And no one is having fun when you do that. Up to this point, we've been talking about optimization in RPGs and the complexity creep in RPGs. Now, there are other games than RPGs. We aren't just role players. We're board gamers. We're card gamers. Card games, yes. Magic the Gathering is actually one of the most well-known card games with one of the biggest card game ecosystems in existence. And it's not as degenerate as, say, Yu-Gi-Oh!, which also has a very large system, but has to basically sweep out a huge number of cards because you can make that will win 100% of the time if they act first. And that's not fun. That's not a game at that point. So Magic the Gathering, its complexity creep is actually managed in a number of different ways. One, they have teams of rules managers at Wizards of the Coast, just managing the rules, making sure that the cards interact with one another. Second, they have groups of judges, this giant network of people that go to tournaments and apply the rulings consistently among all the products. And then they have multiple different levels where players can play. You have the limited formats. You only need to know the rules that are going to be used in your format in Magic. So if you're drafting from one particular set, you need to know what the rules that are applicable to that set is. You won't need to know what banding is if you're drafting from Mirrodin. You will, however, need to know what affinity is if you're drafting from Mirrodin. If you're drafting 
from Onslaught, you won't care what Affinity is, but you need to know what Amplify is. If you're drafting from Innistrad, I don't even know how Innistrad works. I wasn't playing then. It has Transform. It has the ability to turn cards over and change them into completely different monsters. Oh yeah, that was the one where uh, you had to have like a proxy card in your deck to do them, right? Yeah, I hated that. That's a terrible idea. But that's not the point. The point is you only need to know the rules for whatever set you were drafting. Then there are larger formats that introduce a few sets. Now, back when I played, we had the standard, which would be whatever the current set is and then the two previous sets. That would be standard format. I'm not sure how they do it now. Uh, it, it's now based on the last six six sets that have been released because the block structure has been changed up a bit. Okay, because when I, when I played, it was one big set, two small sets in every block. That makes sense. So now that they're doing uh, all the releases as single releases, that changes the format considerably. Okay, but the point being that in each case, you only need to know what works in your format. No one's ever going to care what banding is ever again. Flanking is only going to matter if you're playing in a set where flanking is applicable. Now, if you really want to jump out into the wild blue yonder of magic, there are unlimited formats where you play with all the rules in magic. The eternal formats are particularly rules-heavy and rules-dense. Your brother was actually showing us a number of cards that have been errated heavily from what they actually say. Uh, oh. Chains of Mephistopheles? Chains Chains of Mephistopheles, the, the original card. It's a big thing with magic is a lot of cards were easy to explain to a human, but when you actually started interacting with the rules and considering the lawyeristic wording of the rules format, you found out you had to make all sorts of things happen. So Chains of Mephistopheles always becomes a replacement effect with this and I just it just becomes a nightmare of legalese but it's really easy to explain to a human um I do remember though uh we recently were talking about one particular particular interaction with the rules okay so so here's how it works you have seven lands out and then you play scapeshift upon the resolution of scapeshift you get valakut the molten pinnacle and six mountains Valakut says that whenever a mountain comes into play, if five other mountains are in play, you do three damage to your opponent. Okay. So, the the weird interaction here was that all the lands came into play, all of those abilities go onto the stack, they're about to do a crap ton of damage to you. Right, so they're all stacked up, because that's how magic stack works. And then the opponent instant speed destroyed one of the mountains. And what happens? We are now in a nightmare rules quagmire that a judge had to dig through and sort out into an incredibly elegant solution. The solution was that since all of the mountains came into play at the same time, time if we line them all up we say each to each mountain how many of your brother mountains are there and they would look and they would say there are four brother mountains well that's not quite enough is that's it not enough to cause my effect so i do not do this each of the mountains in turn would do this until you got to the last mountain the one that was being destroyed and he would look and he would say there are five brother mountains and i am departing and so having completed his jisei his death poem this judge had to immediately commit honorable seppuku on the spot and was beheaded by his retainer with much honor and pomp and circumstance. While I'm fairly certain that the last part of that's apocryphal, 
apocryphal. It's about as common as the chaos confetti. So I- I'm fairly certain it's canon now. Yeah. The point being, magic has turned into this environment with these interactions that are so complicated that you need a network of rules knowledge to untangle the web of interactions. And you can play on that level, or as Wizards of the Coast actually very wisely determined, you can limit yourself to a much smaller playing environment with a much less intrusive list of rules and play in a format that is more comfortable to you. So let's go with the wrap-up. Let's let's talk about solutions to complexity creep. We've mostly come up with three solutions for complexity creep in RPGs. The basic solutions are communicate. That's the obvious one. If you trust your DM and you want to play in a game that has a certain degree of interest, excitement, and a level of challenge appropriate to your abilities, tell your DM honestly, frankly, and fairly what your character can do, what challenges your character, and what your character cannot do or explicitly has difficulty with. This will allow them to tailor the challenges of your games to your character in a way that is most appropriate. If this doesn't work, someone is power gaming. If you're holding something back, having an ace in the hole, if you're doing something to completely subvert the challenge level of the game, someone is power gaming. You are power gaming. And in our first episode, we talked about ways of dealing with power gaming. And those are all going to be applicable to this situation, depending on how it plays out. But you're in a power gaming situation at that point. Complexity isn't your problem. It's how the players are playing that complexity and how they're bringing it into the game. The third possibility is maybe the game is too complex at this point. You have a few options for that. The most obvious one is play something else, please. Don't feel the need to play a popular game because it's what other people are playing. Your gaming group is unique to your gaming group. If you aren't taking your game on the road to a specific venue where you are playing a specific game under specific constraints, there is no reason to feel the need to play a game someone else is playing. I personally have said that I'm never going to run Pathfinder again, but I love the Pathfinder Adventure Paths. I'm actually changing all of the all of them just a little bit to work under the fifth edition rule setting, and I hope to be able to run these wonderful stories in a rule setting that I'm comfortable with and that I feel is less complicated and less bogged down by rules. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's something that you need to be at peace with. One of the most liberating ideas that I've ever felt was that what I like is not for everyone. And what other people like is not necessarily for me. When we play games with each other, we're looking for that common ground of things that we both find enjoyable. Of things we both enjoy. So, one of the interesting things that happened with this episode. As we were writing it down, we were going, okay, this is going to be a very simple episode. We're just going to go straight forward, define what it is, and go from there. Yeah, we're just gonna we're just gonna say complexity creep is when a game becomes more complicated with time and becomes impossible to play because of that. So that seems like a fairly simple concept. And then twenty minutes later, we find ourselves go, okay, what were the name of the other four complete books, the ones that no one played with? I don't remember anyone being excited about Complete Scoundrel. I actually ran a character with some stuff from Complete Mage. I remember that. But all of this stuff, and we just ended up going down this sort of rabbit hole of complexity as our episode. 
episode experienced this enormous leap in complexity creep. Yeah, what, what was the release order of all the Pathfinder books? When did Pathfinder actually start coming out? It was wonderful and weird. Yeah, it was sort of an, it was sort of a microcosm of the kind of complexity creep that can happen where we weren't setting out to make an enormously complicated episode with all of these side discussions, these tangents, these other things we needed to talk about. But as we integrated them into our topic, each one introduced these new elements that we really felt needed just a minute of its own time. We needed to talk about the complete series, the ultimate series, and we ended up introducing this into a growing episode that just grew in complexity. Alright, so let's see, what's up next? The touchstones of board gaming. So this is an episode that we really wanted to do for quite some time. We've been holding off on it, trying to work out all of our ideas. Right now, we are in a golden age of board games, and we want to be able to tell everyone about this, but there are so many people that are just stuck in the old family board game night mindset of board games. The people that are playing Monopoly, Taboo, Risk... Clue. So what we're going to be discussing in the next episode is how to make that connection. How to say, if you enjoyed Monopoly, you'll love Lords of Vegas. And bring people from those classic board games and the touchstones that we're all familiar with to the new era of board gaming and what that has to offer us. So this has been Save Versus Rant. Thank you very much for listening. Confucius said, Life is really simple, but we insist on making it complicated. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at saveversusrant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.